Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, John writes, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So verses 1 and 2 tell us that there's going to be a temple in Jerusalem. We looked at that last time. Verse 3, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Yikes. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Verse 7, And when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually it's called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. What city is that? It's Jerusalem. That's where the Lord was crucified. That's what it's talking about. So we know these prophets are in Jerusalem. Verse 9, that those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Let's stop here for tonight. Y'all ready? Okay, so here's the scoop. First off, I'm going to let you know this. These two prophets are men. There's two of them. How do we know they're men? Because it's real simple. In, uh, it tells us here in verse 10 that these are two prophets. It does not say prophetesses. That is what, actually, that's the biblical word for a woman that's a prophet in the New Testament. Did you know that? I didn't. You thought I made that up. Some of you did. I did not make that up. That is in the Bible. So we know that these are two men. And also, I may not be a rocket scientist, but I also happen to know that these two men, prophets, are Jewish. Why is that? This book is a Jewish book. The entire tribulation period is about the redemption of the Jewish people. It is about, the, it's the 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble. Who is Jacob? Jacob is the Jewish people of the 12 tribes of Jacob. It's, it's Israel. So we know these are Jewish men, and there are two of them. Also, keep this in mind. In Romans chapter 11, let me set all this up before we start breaking it down with questions. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, the Bible tells us that blindness in part has happened to Israel, to the Jews, until the fullness of the Gentiles, or until the time of the Gentiles is filled. And then after the time of the Gentiles is filled, something profound is going to happen to the Jewish People. Now understand this, in Romans eleven twenty five, 25, it says blindness in part has happened to the Jews, it's happened to Israel, right? What that means is there's a spiritual blindness. Think of the Apostle Paul, 
He was blinded by the Lord. He couldn't, he couldn't receive the truth until the blinders were taken off and suddenly realized, wow, the Lord Yeshua, he is the Messiah, right? Blindness in part has happened in Israel. There are some Jews that you probably know that are known as Messianic Jews. They have come to faith in Yeshua. They've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, as a whole, blindness has come to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. But something profound happens. God is going to remove the blindfold. In Revelation chapter 7, we've already seen this, there were 144,000 Jewish men that had their blindfolds removed. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Jacob, right? And uh, they were virgin men. Um, another way we know they were men, right? It's because the Bible tells us these things. Uh, they were virgin men, quite possibly from what are known as the Heredi or the Hasidic Jews. Those are the men that dress in black. You've seen pictures of them uh, spending time at the Western Wall. Uh, you go to a certain, uh, down to the Wilshire District in L.A. You go to parts of New York and Philadelphia, you'll, you'll see that. If you go to Jerusalem, you can see it everywhere, right? Um, could it be those 144,000 are from those men? It's, I, I believe it's quite possible. It makes sense to me. But that was another message. We've already covered that topic. But the blinders are removed among those 144,000 Jewish men after the rapture. These two Jewish prophets, the blinders are removed from them also sometime after the, the, um, after the rapture. Now with these two Jewish men, the blindfolds removed, we know that they have certain powers. We just read about them that fire comes out, or lightning comes out of their mouth. And anybody who wishes to kill them, they're gone. These are like superhero powers. Could you imagine that? Remember James and John, they wanted to call fire down from heaven and smite those who disagreed with them. Can you imagine that being in an argument? Oh, yeah? So anyways, apparently these men have that, that uh, superhero power, and they're able to perform great miracles even so that nobody will be able to kill them. So who are they, and what on earth is going on here? Well, let's consider this, that with the nation of Israel, God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to his descendants, you know how long? Forever. It's a forever covenant. That means it's not over. There are a lot of people that say God has replaced Israel. He has not. In fact, the Apostle Paul even said, is God done with Israel? And no, sir, he's absolutely not done, right? A forever covenant with God is forever, right? It's good. Just like you. you if you've received the Lord Jesus Christ, aren't you glad it's a forever covenant? Because yeah. wouldn't it be a real bummer if all of a sudden you blew it and go, oh no, the forever's not, doesn't apply to me, right? What a bummer. Or if God just changed his mind, well, it's forever, but you know what? I'm done with you guys. I'm going to start working with the Jews again. You guys are history, right? Wouldn't that be a, no, it's a forever covenant that he made with the Son that anyone who believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. God made a forever covenant with Abraham, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his descendants. It's a covenant for the land of Israel. It's a covenant for the people of Israel, the Jewish people. God's going to honor that. So all of this, the entire book of Revelation, is all about that, God honoring his covenant and the redemption of the Jewish people. Now with that, God removing the blinders of the people of Israel. Uh, think of this. There's a new study 
uh, that's called Evangelical Attitudes Toward Israel and the Peace Process found, get a load of this, you ready? That roughly 871,000 Americans, get a load of this, who embrace evangelical Christianity have a Jewish parent or grandparent. 871,000 Americans that fit into a category like us are Jewish. That's remarkable. And then check this out. Here's this study. This is remarkable. Um, it's out of the Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that word, Jerusalem post. One-fifth of Jewish millennials believe Jesus is the Son of God. Now, this, is, this, is, this to me is wild. Now, believing in Jesus is not the same thing as being committed to Jesus, but nevertheless, it is a stunning statistic. Jews believing in Jesus foreshadows the time of a national revival or national awakening that is coming to Israel when the time of the Gentiles is filled during the tribulation period when there's two witnesses, these two prophets, and 144,000 Jews that are proclaiming the everlasting gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is just so, so incredible to see all these things taking place in the generation that we live in right now. Uh, the focus of all last day's prophecies has Israel and specifically Jerusalem and the Temple Mount as the bullseye. And uh, uh, we already know, we've, we've seen it last time, that the temple is going to be built in Jerusalem. The Antichrist is going to demand to be worshipped there. But um, these Jews that we read about here in chapter 11, the Jews of the 144,000, the revival that's going to happen to the Jewish people, uh, is, uh, is, is they're the physical descendants of Jacob who God named Israel. Paul called them in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, his kinsmen according to the flesh. So somehow, before we get to the point of the tribulation, God has to prepare their hearts. And I look at that, and I think this is a remarkable preparation of the hearts of Jewish people. I have uh, friends that are Jewish and are not messianic. They're not saved. I have friends that are Jewish and they are messianic. They've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. My messianic friends from Israel have told me over and over again, it's very hard, but they said it was much harder 20 years ago to be a messianic Jew in Israel than it is now. It's getting easier and easier and easier. Rabbis are starting to be willing to talk to people who are coming, Jews who are coming to faith in Yeshua. But God, I, I, I absolutely believe God is preparing them now. A couple of more things before we get on to the understanding and answer some questions uh, of the text we read. These witnesses, we're told here, they are ministering. They will, um, let's see, uh, verse 3, for 1,260 days, they're going to be clothed in sackcloth. That sounds pretty itchy, but... Uh, I don't know if they're ever going to wash their sackcloth 1,260 days straight. Maybe not. Um, but that's besides the point. That's something only I would think of. Um, 1,260 days on the lunar calendar, which is what the Jews would use, would be 30-day months. So it's exactly uh, 42 months, three and one-half years. This duration of 1,260 days lasts for the first half of the tribulation period. It begins with the covenant when the, that the Antichrist confirms with the Jewish people 
the uh, Arab people, the uh, Persian people, and I believe much of the rest of the world. Daniel chapter 9 says it is a covenant with many. So it begins at the confirmation of the treaty. I believe it begins that day. The day the covenant is signed, these two prophets are going to start saying, whoa, whoa, whoa! This man is a devil. That Antichrist is a fraud. Sometime after these two prophets, the 144,000 are going to get saved. But the first, these first two, they're going to, uh, we're going to look at who they are uh, here in just a second. But uh, just before we get there, I want you to think of this. So, uh, when you are in Jerusalem now, many of you have seen this view in person. This is from the Mount of Olives, and you're looking out there, and you, this is what you see. You see the, uh, you, you see the um, whatever that thing's called, the Temple Mount, right? The Temple Mount, essentially, the, it's a giant retaining wall all the way around the area. Uh, Herod had built that King Herod, and the temple is on top of it. So there didn't used to be this gold dome up here. Um, history revisionists try to tell you otherwise, but uh, there used to be a temple there, and, and there's going to be a temple again, right? Can you imagine uh, being there, again, if you've been to Israel, you can really imagine this, you're there. It, it, could you imagine going to Israel, if you went on a trip to Israel, and the rapture hadn't taken place yet, the tribulation hadn't started yet, you're on the Mount of Olives, and you're watching, you're watching something like this, instead of, instead of this, you're there, and you're watching cranes and the temple be built, would that be wild? It would, be, it would be interesting, to say the least. Well, let's think about this, right? We have a president who's convinced he's going to bring about uh, peace in Jerusalem between the Jews and the Palestinians, and there's lots of different talk on what's in the peace contract, the peace covenant, and, and so forth. Um, a lot of Bible teachers think that it probably includes the opportunity for the Jews to be able to build their temple, um, so we'll see how this all works out. Uh, whether or not Trump's going to be able to pull that off, time will tell. But here's this article. Uh, how Saudi Crown Prince is working on a Palestinian-Israeli, uh, on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, right? Uh, uh, Crown Prince Salman el-Sisi and Israel plan a mega city connecting Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. And uh, this goes on to say Trump's deal is also on the table. Now, here's the thing with the Saudi crown prince. Listen to this. Uh, he's been called the most dangerous man in the world, and so is Putin, by the way, uh, an aggressive and an ambitious man. Uh, we're talking about the Middle East rising star, 32-year-old Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. MBS, Mohammed bin Salman. MBS, as he's called by the media, will probably become Saudi's new king this year because his ailing father, King Salman, reportedly suffers from Alzheimer's disease and is not able to concentrate on his tasks of the monarchy anymore. MBS was in Egypt and the United Kingdom uh, on the first leg of a month-long trip, which will end in the United States. There he reportedly will focus on U.S. President Donald Trump's deal of the century. During his three-day visit to Cairo, the Saudi crown prince once again showed he's an out-of-the-box thinker who is seriously working to implement sweeping reforms in Saudi Arabia. He reportedly arranged a series of meetings between top Saudi officials and their Israeli counterparts, which were also attended by representatives of the Egyptian government. So I'm looking at this, and, 
And, and you see this person. He's Now, I'm going to say this on the record. Pastor Tom is not saying this is the Antichrist. But I want, I want you to think of this. This man is 32 years old. He's come out of relative obscurity. He is on the scene. He's building the most expensive city in the world that's very similar to what the Bible describes as the last days Babylon. That's between Jordan, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia. Going to connect all these. Uh, it's, it's an incredible place as I've, as I've read about it. Um, we live in exciting times. At the same time, he's really involved with this peace covenant, uh, the peace work, wanting to be the one who really gets the deal done, uh, willing to confirm President Trump's deal if it looks like it's going to work. You start looking at all this, you're going, you got to be kidding me. So, no, again, did I say, what did I say? I, listen, I do not believe he's the Antichrist, but what we see is how out of relative obscurity a man can rise to power. President uh, Obama rose to power out of relative obscurity. This man, Ben Salman, rises out of relative obscurity, 32 years old, totally charismatic, right? Smart and everything. You're looking at this and you go, wow, how easily the Antichrist can rise to power and confirm a peace covenant that is in place and, and folks, I mean, this just tells me we're living in exciting days. So I read things like this, and I'm like, wow. So anyways, what happens? So let's get on. I haven't answered any questions yet, and I only got like four minutes left. You ready? Okay, we don't have a lot of questions tonight, praise the Lord. All right, first question, who are these two prophets? Because that's what you want to know, right? Well, they could be two Jews who lived during the Old Testament. But the Bible doesn't say they have to be two Jews living in, who lived in the Old Testament, all right? Or they could be two Jews that are living right now. Um, they could be two Jews that are, that are of our era. Two Jews that are living over in Jerusalem, right? It could be that. Um, if it's two Jews from the Old Testament... That means they're probably not going to appear on the scene and they're going to suddenly appear when the, the confirmation of the Antichrist takes place. So they aren't, going to be, they aren't going to show up until the beginning of the tribulation period, like right away. Covenant signed, all of a sudden these two men are going to show up. But if it's not two men from the Old Testament, then that means it's two men today, quite possibly, if that's the case, living in Jerusalem. You just saw an article that one out of five Jewish millennials are now looking at Yeshua. Maybe he is the Messiah. Could it be two out of those millennials that are starting to look at that are going, hmm, could it be them? We don't know for sure, but we are going to look at possibilities. So here's the deal. If they are from the Old Testament, who are they? I am glad you asked me uh, that question. We're only going to look at three, though, all right, because we don't have a lot of time. Uh, I'm going to give you what are the three, uh, uh, most out of these three, two of these three, I believe, are probably uh, the prophets if they are not two Jews living in Jerusalem right now, right? So I'm going to give you three from the Old Testament that have the greatest possibility of being these two prophets. The first one would be Enoch. Why Enoch? Well, Enoch was the father of uh, Methuselah, but why Enoch? Because of primarily because of this reason. In Genesis chapter 5, the Bible says Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. And he begot Methuselah, after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300, 
years and had sons and daughters. We had a lot of kids after that. I mean, you live to be 365, you can have a lot of kids, right? So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, keep that in mind. God took him. What does that mean? Well, here's the genealogy at the time of Enoch from Genesis chapter 5. This is typically how it went. Uh, so all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died, right? All the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. All the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. Man, these are old men. Wow. Mahalil, his days were 895 years. He was young, and he died. Jared, 962 years, and he died. Methuselah, 969 years, and he died. Lamech. 777 years, and he died, and he died, and he died. The monkey wrench in all of those genealogies is Enoch. Enoch. He didn't die. God took him. What does that mean, God took him? It means he was translated. Um, he was caught up into heaven. If we were to put it in our terms, he was raptured. So, with the case of Enoch, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, it's appointed for men to die once, and after this face, judgment. So Enoch didn't die. So there are many people that will say, well, one of the two prophets then is Enoch, because Enoch didn't die, God took him, he was raptured. So this Hebrews says that all men must die once, and after this, the judgment, all right? That's one possibility, it's Enoch. Again, I believe it's probably a two out of these three men, if not somebody living in Israel now. A second person on the, the uh, hot list would be Elijah. Now, we know a, lot, a, a great deal about Elijah. We know uh, that he dressed strangely. He had an odd appearance, and he ran fast. We know he was a fast runner because in 1 Kings chapter 18, he's running from Jezebel and uh, he's, he's, he's out of there. You know, if you, you have a woman that's chasing you and wants to kill you, you can run pretty fast. So that's what happened with, with Elijah. Uh, but here's what we know about Elijah that actually counts for the study of the book of Revelation. He was a prophet, and like Enoch, he also did not die. Elijah and Elisha stood talking, uh, and Elijah knew that he was about ready to leave this earth. And the Bible tells us this. Then it happened as they continued on and talked, Elijah and Elisha, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up in a whirlwind to heaven. Elijah gets raptured, right? But what happens? And Elisha saw it, right? And he cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and his horsemen. So he saw Elijah no more. Elijah was caught up into the air like Enoch was caught up into the air. So God took both Enoch and God took Elijah. More evidence for Elijah? Uh, he prophesies a drought in 1 Kings chapter 17. What happens here in Revelation chapter 11 verse 6? These two prophets have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. So there's a drought, right? That's the power there. Also, he calls fire down from heaven. In 1 Kings chapter 
18, he has a contest with the prophets of Baal, which ended when God sent fire from heaven to consume a thoroughly drenched sacrifice. Now think of this also, all right? You can read along if you want, but in 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, listen to this. Then the king sent to Elijah. This is on Mount Carmel. If you've ever been to Israel, you've been to Mount Carmel. You know the whole scene up there. The Jezreel Valley or the Valley of Armageddon is down below. You're up there on Mount Carmel. And this is where this took place with the prophets of Baal and Elijah and the consuming fire, right? So this is what happened. Second Kings gives us things that First Kings doesn't. Um, Second and First Chronicles do that same thing. Read those books together and you get all kinds of really cool details. That one book will have, the other won't have. It's totally cool. You put them together. But that's what happens. So 1 Kings, we find out a little bit. 2 Kings, we find out this. Chapter 1 of 2 Kings. Then the king sent to Elijah a captain of 50 with his 50 men. So he went up to Elijah, and there Elijah was sitting on the top of the hill. And the captain spoke to Elijah. So the captain, the king sends the captain, and the captain has 50 men with him, and the captain goes to Elijah. You following that? Okay. And the captain, with his 50 men, says to Elijah, this is a big mistake, man of God, he was right there, the king has said, come down. In other words, they eh, ain't doing this anymore. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of the 50, if I am a man of God, here's, the, here's where it went wrong for these men, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. If I'm a man of God, guess what happened? Fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men, right? Man of God, prophet of God, dressed in sackcloth, right? What do we have here in verse 5 of Revelation 11? If anyone wants to harm these two prophets, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. But there's more. Can I give you more? Okay, good, because I'm going to go way over tonight. Is that all right? I'm mean, not way over, but I am going to go over a few minutes. Eh, a few. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. This is what the Bible says, right? You guys know this verse. Behold, God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, you're probably saying yes, but Jesus explained that that prophet was fulfilled in Elijah, I mean, in John the Baptist. Remember that? It wasn't quite fulfilled in John the Baptist. I'm going to show you something. Jesus was speaking specifically to the Jews. Pay careful attention to the words that Jesus used, right? This is what Jesus says about John the Baptist. And if, he says to the Jews, if you are willing to receive it, then he, that would be John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. Okay. Receive what? That he's the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah. If I, you receive me, right? Here's the problem. Did they receive it? No. As God told us far in advance, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and that means they also rejected John the Baptist as being in Elijah. Uh, being the same. Um, hence, the coming of the Messiah is split in two, right? They rejected Jesus, the coming of the Messiah is split in two. In fact, when you read Isaiah chapter 53, it's very clear you have the first coming of Christ who dies as a sacrificial lamb, and then you have the second coming of Christ who's coming again as conqueror. 
All right, now look at this. Go back to Malachi. What does Malachi say? Malachi says this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. When Jesus came the first time and he went to the cross, was that the great and dreadful day of the Lord? No, that wasn't. The great and dreadful day of the Lord is a time of Jacob's trouble. That is still coming in the future. All right? So we have Enoch. We have Elijah. I've, almost all scholars will say one of these guys has got to be Elijah. Right? Because of that verse alone right there. That's why so many Bible teachers say, yeah, it's Elijah. So it's Elijah and Enoch. Enoch never died. Hebrews says everybody's got to die once, right? So the other possibility, you probably have heard this, um, is Moses. So these are the three most likely possibilities out of all of these. So the argument against no, Moses as being one of the two witnesses that's spoken of in Revelation 11 is that Moses died, yet Hebrews 9 says it's appointed a man to die once. So if Moses is one of the two prophets coming, in the tribulation period, that means Moses will die twice, right? Because the Antichrist is going to rise up and kill Moses. So that presents a problem. Does that contradict uh, Hebrews chapter 9? Well, here's this. Consider that others died twice in the Bible. Elijah raised somebody from the dead, and they died again, right? Jesus raised the son of Nain from the dead, and he died again. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and Lazarus died again. So there's already precedence through the miraculous work of God that somebody could die and come back to life only to die again, all right? So with that, just as a thought, because I know some people right now want to argue with me on the internet, that's all right. We're going to look at a few more things. So don't start that blog site yet. Evidence for Moses. He appeared with Elijah at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Matthew chapter 17, Peter's there. He says to Jesus, he sees Moses transfigured, Elijah transfigured, and Jesus is there in his glory. He says, Lord, let us build three tabernacles or let us build three tents. Do you remember that passage, right? One for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Now, it's very interesting that both Moses and Elijah are the two from the Old Testament singled out for the appearance at the Mount of Transfiguration. Also, the other thing is here with, with Moses is that he died, but he did not die in the usual way. How is that? Now check this out. This is where it gets weird, and this is where it gets really intriguing for Revelation chapter 11. Um, Jude tells us of Moses' death uh, from the Jewish uh, oral tradition, the Mishnah. And this is what Jude 9 says. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil... When he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now normally stories from the Mishnah don't make it into the Bible, but this is the Bible. This is canon. This is the Bible. God's saying, this is my word. This is what actually took place in the spiritual realm. There was a spiritual battle over the body of Moses. Why? I don't know. This is weird. Um, you, and then you have Elijah, whose body, who's caught up into heaven. 
And then you have Moses with him appearing on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's very interesting. Here's what we can know for certain. God was doing something with the body of Moses that seems to be reserved for a future time, for future use. We don't have all the information on it, but this is the only person in the history of the world that we know that God did something specific for a reservation of the body, a, 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 a preservation of the body of Moses. Now, people have argued for years the reason why uh, the, uh, Moses' body was never found and, and various things took place is because um, they have said that the Jews and by extension, Christians would end up worshiping a Moses, so, which is probably quite true. I and mean, we built a shrine for, for tortillas that have the face of Jesus on it, you know? <laughs> so we probably would, right? I agree with that. However, there's something, very, there's something unique about the body of Moses and God's plan that we don't know. And uh, so one more thing about uh, Moses. Um, the plagues during Israel's exodus on behalf of Moses resemble all the plagues of Revelation and specifically even Revelation chapter 11. In verse 6, we read that these uh, prophets have power over waters to turn them to blood, just like the first plague to strike Egypt. And God struck Egypt with a host of plagues. Revelation chapter 6 also says that these two prophets have the power to strike the earth with all plagues. With that, you ready to move on? Okay, because we only have 17 more questions. We've been through, what, two? <laughs> no, we actually, I don't have a lot. From here on out, it's going to go pretty fast. So you guys can hang a few more minutes? Okay, so number three, what happens to the two prophets? Verse seven tells us, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So what are we told here? When they finish their testimony. Same thing with you and I, right? God has a work for you. And we can trust God, that uh, be faithful to Him, we will finish our testimony, whatever it is. And we especially have this hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, that if you have a friend that's in Christ that, that has died, they finished their testimony, they finished whatever God had for them, and you know what? You're going to be reunited with them in heaven. Um, there's these two prophets. Something remarkable was planned for them. By our estimation, most things, you know, we aren't going to do things that remarkable. But whatever it is that God has planned for us, we can stay strong and press forward. Amen? Let's move on. Next question. Um, who kills these two prophets? Verse 7 says the beast does. I believe we'll see this more when we get to Revelation chapter 13. Uh, I believe this beast is the... Uh, Antichrist, and uh, he's given the opportunity to be able to kill these two prophets. By the way, I want to say this also that Romans or Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 said it's appointed to man once to die and then face the judgment. Um, as with these two prophets, um, we have an appointment with death, uh, it's, it's, on a, it's on a calendar, it's on God's calendar somewhere. There's an appointment there, and when that happens, as a believer in Christ. Christ as a believer, man, as a, as a believer in Christ, we're going to heaven, right? I already mentioned that. We're going to heaven. So it's, it's on his calendar, but man, heaven's a glorious place. But I, I, want, I want to show you this real quick. 
uh, they're gonna, they don't have their appointment with death until after their work is done. It's 1,260 days. So their, their uh, mission begins at the confirmation of the covenant with the Antichrist, right? 1,260 days takes you to where? The middle point of the tribulation period, right? What else happens at the middle point of the tribulation period? It's the abomination of desolation by the Antichrist. This is what happens. You can turn over there if you want. Matthew chapter 24 says this. Verse 11. This is the midpoint of the tribulation period. Jesus, in his own words, uh, verse 15. 24 verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be on the, uh, in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. So how does this work? It appears that this is how this transitions. The prophets give their, they, they give the prophecy for three and a half years. They are killed. The Antichrist is full of himself and he's full of Satan. Second Thessalonians tells us he will sit in the temple and demand to be worshipped as God. The abomination of desolation, right? So they're killed. He goes over to the temple right after he kills them. The people are praising him for killing them. Killing the two prophets. He sits there. I'm God, and then he wreaks, Matthew chapter 24, the havoc on the Jewish people, so much so that they've got to escape. That's Revelation chapter 12. They're going to escape. What I believe is this place called Petra in Jordan. Um, it's, a, it's a place where people can run to. You can hide in the caves there and, and all these different things. And, and I'll show you when we get to chapter 12, not tonight, why I believe it's Petra. So when Jesus said, flee to the mountains in Matthew 24, it appears to me that's what he was talking about. All right, so you follow in the timeline and everything so far? What happens next? Their bodies will lie in the streets for three days. Now, I want you to think of this. In death, we honor great men and women by the way we treat their bodies. Uh, Billy Graham's body um, was the first religious leader in history to receive the honor of lying uh, in state in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. President's have that same opportunity. Nixon declined, but uh, presidents have that same opportunity. So we, uh, in death, we honor great men um, and women by the way we treat their bodies, but these bodies are going to be lying in the streets for three days, and uh, they're going to be unembalmed, and they're going to be looking really bad. How do the people react? We are almost done. That's right. What am I talking about? <laughs> you ever have these brain things? You know, it's doing all these services. I think I'm going to start doing one service on Sunday morning. And that's it. <laughs> Nothing else. No, I'm kidding. How do the people react? Verse 9. Christmas, like that. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their bodies for three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. 
And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. This is going to be like Christmas. They're going to be going, woohoo! The Antichrist sits in the temple, demands to be worshipped as God. The people are going to be rejoicing. And the Jews are going to realize we've got a problem. They're going to be fleeing to Petra. But the world's going to rejoice. Um, we, can, we already can see the direction this is all going now. Uh, the, they're they're going to be thrilled that the Antichrist has rid the world of these two preachers of righteousness. We don't want to hear this. We don't want to hear the gospel. We don't want to hear about your Jesus. We don't want to hear about your Bible, right? So let's think about this. This is a picture of the train ride on the way into Auschwitz, where the Jews were persecuted because they were Jews, right? Um, and, then, and, and now we have the persecution against Christians that has picked up incredibly throughout the world. Um, there are more Christians killed each year in the world right now than ever in the history of the world, just being absolutely slaughtered, absolutely slaughtered throughout the world. In America, persecution is picking up. It's, it's becoming very strange. I'll show you um, just some of the things, right? So here's this title, Scientists Now Resort to Calling Christians Crazy, New study attempts to establish a link between religious fundamentalism and brain damage. I'm going to read. Now, this is a real study. Now, wait till I hear this. We'll get to that in a minute. There's just a few other things first. The Daily Reports. Church forced to remove the word Jesus from its Easter advertising as the word is considered to be offensive to non-Christians. Right? So that's in New Wales, or New South Wales, right? So you have that. it's coming to America, I'm just telling you. Right, here's this. Christians, this is in America, uh, Harvard University, Christian Students Club on probation for following Christian teachings. Right? That's, this is, a lot of this, what's happening in universities in America is is really bothersome. How many of you recognize the name Tony Dungy, coach of, uh, NFL coach, right, and commentator? Uh, Great Christian man. I have read both of his books. Tony Dungy, get, wait till I hear this, defends on-air comments about Nick Foles' Christian faith during the Super Bowl. Nick Foles was the winning quarterback, right, of the Super Bowl. Now check this out. Former NFL coach, now NBC sports commentator Tony Dungy, is responding to criticism on social media about his analysis of the strength of Philadelphia's quarterback Nick Foles, his Christian faith, in helping uh, the Eagles defeat the Patriots, right? A strong, <laughs> a strong Christian himself, Dungy responded in a tweet, writing, NBC pays me to express my opinion. And it was my opinion that Nick Foles would play well because his Christian faith would allow him to play with confidence and that he's a good quarterback. I think I was right on both counts, right? So you can't say say anything about Jesus, even on social media, without getting blasted, right? College student, I don't know if this person was Christian or not. I haven't looked enough into this college student, University of Pennsylvania, barred from class for claiming there are only two genders. Did you hear about that one? All right, so there's a, there's a ton of these every day that are coming out, right? Uh, but back to this. You've got to hear this. I won't read the whole thing. It's kind of long, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. You guys want to go home. Oh, you don't? Oh, great. Let's go to part two. No, I'm kidding. Ready? So scientists, you got that title, right? Scientists from Northwestern University published a study attempting to establish a link between religious fundamentalism 
and brain impairment. This is real. I'm not making this up. The findings suggest that religious fundamentalists have less cognitive flexibility. In addition, the study states that damage to particular areas of the prefrontal cortex indirectly promotes religious fundamentalism. In other words, science is now attempting to say that those who believe the Bible have brain damage. And they say they have problems with a social um, control. Uh, the ability, they don't have the ability, it suppresses the ability to uh, get along with other people in society, apparently, right? You're not a social justice warrior. So this is, yeah, I, listen, I seriously don't make these things up. I don't have that much time to make up stuff like this. I can read the Babylon Bee if I want to get that, you know, that kind of spoof stuff. Um, the, the scientists who conducted the study believe that adherence to religious fundamentalism is the result of some form of brain damage, whether it be by brain trauma, a psychological disorder, or drug or alcohol addiction, or simply a particular genetic profile. Also, the scientists believe that in the near future, through various kinds of mental and cognitive exercises, the adherence to religious fundamentalism can be eradicated. Wow. So this is the mindset as the world is moving forward, right? Much of the world Christians are slaughtered or jailed. Here in the United States, we're experiencing this coming from universities and from the media. This is what's really out there, right? So, but, but we, so the people are going to rejoice that these two prophets are dead. Woohoo! We weren't able to kill them, but the Antichrist could. Let's worship the Antichrist. Right? So you can see how the whole setup is going. But not so fast. Verse 11, after the three and a half days, the breath of life of, from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Woohoo! That's next time. But I bet. I mean, you can imagine also, uh-oh, that's when you really go, Houston, we have a problem, right? That's a real big problem. What do we know about all this? When you see these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord.